Hey, well, welcome again to Simon Mayo's Books of the Year, another fine books-based podcast starring Matt Williams. Yes, and starring Simon Mayer. And here we are, just, you know, we're talking books. Thank you very much, Steve, for downloading us. We appreciate it very much. Spread the word, tell everybody um, that we're here. Yes, because, please. You know, we talked do. about books for years. We haven't just stopped, you know. No, no, we it, were doing it somewhere else. We and were. Then that and that stopped. And then it stopped. <laughs> Why did it stop? Let's know. not get into that. Hey, have you read about. Uh, I wrote a thing in the Radio Times. Yes. All about podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and Turns about, out you do lots of podcasts. Well, there's a, there's a few others that mm. I do. But, uh, you know, let's talk about <laughs> uh, books of the year. Yeah. Leone, this is from, uh, from Twitter. Uh huh. With regards to weekend listening on my fruit-based device, I find myself reaching for books of the year ahead of Wittertainment. Wow. Which is the film podcast, obviously. Yeah. This is an interesting turn-up for the books, literally. Quite literally, yes, indeed. Uh, Short Blonde says, The idiot I'm married to came home and caught me in bed listening to this podcast. Thankfully, made me put it back to the start so he could listen too. And I've been instructed to purchase both books today. Yeah, you can tweet us at uh, Books of the Year. Uh, Diane Haywood, loving that this week's Books of the Year podcast has a Mamma Mia 2 trailer. <laughs> yes, that featured when I was listening in the kitchen, which was something of a surprise. Uh, but it was like it needs any promo. <laughs> yes. You know? Oh, is the one out? No idea. Um, and if you uh, want to uh, contact us, and uh, if you've downloaded and read any of the books that we talk about, let us know. Star of the North, DB John, uh, was in one of our previous uh, shows Sabine, what would you say there, Matt? Surname. It feels wrong to say a book primarily based in North Korea is thoroughly enjoyable, uh, but Star of the North is that. It's completely fascinating, both gripping and intellectually stimulating. I learnt a lot about North Korea. The author's notes explain what parts of the book were real-life events, and D.B. John entwines them into the story seamlessly. They are shocking and terrifying. The story jumps between the three main characters. I became absorbed in each one's life, always wanting to learn more. It was definitely worth reading. Yes, Rachel emailed about our other guest on that podcast, Aunt Middleton, um, uh, saying this episode was very interesting. Your question, Simon, about him seeming to love killing and his I loved my job response made me cringe in distaste. His is not a genre of book I've ever gravitated towards, but I will look out for it as perhaps it'll illuminate why he came across the way he did. Uh, this isn't an email which will be read out. Yes, it is. Uh, I realise, but I woke up this morning wanting to, to respond in some way. I'm also loving The Dust Which Falls From Trees by Louis de Bernier. I wanted to read it before jumping into the next book you feature on this podcast. I've been recommending you have a great weekend. Uh, I just want to mention uh, a couple of other things before we kick in with our with our uh, big guests. Highlighted by a couple of emails here, Dominic Baldwin... Have we got time to do this? Yeah, OK. Dominic Baldwin uh, says, Simon and Matt, just come back from a brilliant weekend at a literary uh, arts festival, so thought I'd fill you in. in uh, it's held in the New Forest, which looked more like a parched desert. The Curious Festival was a mix of music, books, comedy and gin. Gin? <laughs> and a massive tent. We saw talks and Q&As with Matt Hay, Kate Moss, Michael Horowitz, uh, Rob Lloyd-Jones, Stephen Frears and Lynn Barber. And Al Murray did some stand-up that I'd have loved to have seen him interviewed about his brilliant watching war films with my dad. Yeah. When I say we, I mean me. My wife barely left the fever tree gin tent except to dance with a Peruvian pan flute band. <laughs> Often, I think, if you've been drinking gin... The, the attractions. Where's the Peruvian of, pan flight? Well, the more gin you have, the more Peruvian pan flight music becomes an attractive thing. Yes, yes. Wow. Happy days indeed. You should do a pod from there next year whilst getting a rub down. 
I do yes. like I do like a fever tree. But, but well, yes, we like all kinds of gin. But certainly, uh, yes. Well, they do go. the tonic, and if you spend the money on the tonic, then you know that's a good, that's a good thing. <laughs> the, the, yes, I'm just they saying, do because I can. Are they, are they still not sending us any money? Reckless. I mean, at least, at least send us the tonic. Anyway, so but, but this you know so there's loads of book festivals around. Yes, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, Sally Evans also emailed about uh, the Curious Arts Festival in Hampshire. She just got back from a brilliant weekend there with her family. Kids loved all the arts and crafts. Uh, an excellent children's comedian called James Campbell and the freedom to run around as the site was small. My highlight was a talk by children's author Rob Lloyd-Jones, billed as an Egyptologist, giving a talk about mummies and treasure hunting. I wasn't sure what to expect, but it turned out to be several brilliantly observed anecdotes about how he became a writer and where he gets his inspiration from with a good dose of ancient history thrown in. I also enjoyed the adult comedy, especially Ben Pope, watching legendary Lynn Barber struggle to interview a very cantankerous Stephen Frears and having a good dance to John Newman. An excellent festival and I will happily go back. I can't be doing with interviewees who are cantankerous. Really? Just play the game. Come on. Uh, I went to the Thixton's Old Peculiar uh, Crime... The crime one, yeah. ...fiction festival uh-huh. in, in, in Harrogate. And all I can say is, apart from the fact that I was a huge success Obviously there, massive. Uh, talking about crime, uh, historical crime fiction. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was thinking, I'm not quite sure why I'm... Well, I was thrilled to be to be asked, but my book is historical fiction. I was going to say, so... But, is, but there, you know, but there is a crime. crime. There is a, a crime of, in there's there. There's crime in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so of that course, works. Anyway, I ended up having breakfast with Lee Child. Wow! So, how what does Lee Child have for breakfast then? Actually, he had a he had a big English uh, uh, fry up because he's massive. He's really tall, so I, I can't imagine. But he's having... very very thin. So, yeah. but yes, he had a big fry up. So he didn't have muesli. Good. He good. absolutely did not. And There's hopefully, no it'd be nice. If we I think we should be getting him on this podcast. Yeah. There's no way Jack Reacher has muesli. That's my guess. He says nothing. That's what happens. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. It's books of the year at yahoo.com. Yes. Here come the guests. And here we have our packed studio with two fantastic writers. Uh, Matt's here as well. Yes, I am. Because he's hanging around. Obviously. Uh, Michael Calvin uh, has written State of Play. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, sir. You? Twice. uh, Very good. Thank you. Twice named sports... I mean, I could say lots of things about it, but suffice to say, twice named sports writer of the year, sports reporter of the year, and a best-selling author. It's not bad, is it? Bravo. Is there anything else you'd like to chip in at that point? A warm and wonderful human being. (laughs) A warm and wonderful (laughs) human being. Modest too, yeah. Uh, Melvin Burgess, uh, it's really good to see you again, sir. How are you? Um, hot, but happy. Okay, well, that's pretty good. That, mm. That's almost a book title. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll go away and write it, yes. <laughs> in, the, in the copy, the first copy of, uh, of your book, The Lost Witch, uh, I got, it said on the cover, Melvin Burgess, the godfather of YA. I know, yes. Mm. And I looked at that and I thought, I know what they're trying to say. I bet Melvin doesn't like that. You guessed, <clears throat> you guessed quite correctly, but I comfort myself with it. It's better than the grandfather of YA. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but also... Paul Weller is called, you know, like the mod father, you know, yeah. and I was thinking, okay, well, there's if Paul, you know, Paul Weller and Melvin Burgess, that kind of works. I kind of see where you're going with this. I thought you were going to call me the Yar father, YA. Oh, very good. Mm. Yar father. Yar father. Yar. How about um, Melvin Burgess, winner of the Carnegie Medal, uh, best selling author? Thank you. That'll do. That'll do very nicely. I'll uh, take that. Melvin's book is The Lost Witch. Michael's book is State of Play. Matt is going to describe both covers for us now. Yes, let's start with Melvin's then. So we've got this, uh, what is a very spectral cover, and it is dominated by a profile of uh, a teenage girl with her eyes closed, sort of uh, gazing upwards, but 
through her we can see a wolf prowling through some woods and we know that we are in uh, that kind of territory of uh, things that are not, all, not of this world. Is that I've right? <clears throat> very well described that. Michael's book is State of Play and we have a battered football right in the centre dominating uh, virtually all of the uh, the front part of this book and you've obviously got the football pitch behind it and then State of Play picked out in yellow. Michael, three-time British Sports Book Award winner, well-deserved, uh, above it, under the skin of the modern game. That's all on the cover? All on the front cover. All right, OK. So there are two books. Um, Melvin, I think I spoke to you uh, like 10 or 15 years ago. A while ago. ago. And this is your first book for five years? Five years. Why such a long time? I frankly got fed up writing books. That's a very good answer. I'd done done about 20-odd, and I was just like, oh, God, you know. I just couldn't couldn't get my head around it. And also, uh, because I was getting uh, fed up with it and bored with it, um, the books I was writing were getting worse and worse. So I thought it's time to, you know, stop this for a while. So why do you you think you were getting bored just done too many i think i just done too many i think i just needed a break and i was really running out of things that i wanted to say you know i mean you know a book that you might finish in a few weeks or uh, even a few days you you, you can be living with for a, a year or two years sometimes mm. so you know you've, you've really got to be uh, engaged and interested if not actually obsessed so did you did you think maybe you wouldn't write again or would, did oh, yeah, you I always did, yeah. think your mojo might come back uh, yeah, yeah, it's losing your mojo. Um, I, um, I did for a while think that I might actually hang up my, uh, my pen and, um, and not, not write anything. Uh, the only problem is, <laughs> the only problem is, you know, you sort of get up and you come up, come up, come, uh, come downstairs in the morning. And you go, what am I going to do now? <laughs> what am I going to do now? You know, oh, I know, I'll write a book. No, no, I've given it up. So, you know, and I, I, I wrote that. I did sort of little experiments on Twitter. I, I did this, that and the other. I... I had some time off, and uh, but gradually, gradually, um, I think if you write fiction, it's just one of the things that you do. You, you're kind of locked in. So where did the Lost Witch come from? Did it arrive slowly? Was it something that arrived fully formed? How did it? Appear? No, it was um, uh, it was one of those books that's more of an exploration than something that I had in my head. Um, my publisher was publish- redoing the backlist, and he said, uh, you know, Melvin, we need a new title to support these these books. And my editor suggested witches, and I was a bit like, oh, you know, witches, I've done a witch book, everyone else has done a witch book. But then I started thinking about, you know, it's a thing I've done before, you know, what witches would have been, and they would have, um, they would have been animists, they would have believed in the spirit world. Um, it's the original religion, after all, so, you know, everything has a spirit, you and me and the, the trees and, and the beasts and so forth. And, uh, and then it all started, started building from there. It was a very rich world, very fantastic world. So it, it, it came about, really, just exploring this idea that there is a hidden world all around us that only certain people can see mm-hmm. or have communication with or a relationship with or command or be commanded by, perhaps. I do think, you know, within the first sort of uh, 50, 60 pages, I thought well, there are very few authors who would who would get this right because a lot of people go, witches and wizards. I, th- I think that's kind of it's kind of been done, but instantly with with this and in, in your extraordinary opening chapters, you think, okay, this is I'm on I'm on for this ride. Just explain where we are right at the very beginning with B Wilder and her family. Uh, we're in Yorkshire, of course. Just explain this uh, this opening scene. So they're coming across the high moors, and the rain is pelting down. It's a huge storm because we, you know, I live in Hebden Bridge, where we have all the floods and so forth. So it's one of those really 
drenching days. And through the darkness, uh, they can see uh, lights bouncing down through the fields on the roads. And, uh, you know, what on earth are people doing out in this? And uh, and then the the car slows down and B sees by the side of the car three hares. And they realise it's a hunt out on this terrible night after these three beasts. And... um, one of these hares jumps for sanctuary actually into the car and sits on B. And she's sort of filled with a, you know, a tremendous desire, a tremendous desire to sort of protect it and look after it. And the other hares are being caught by the dogs and, and torn by the dogs, really. And, um, and this hare sitting on her lap, it, uh, it looks up at her and it says, let me out. And uh, she... She does that, but then she's completely astonished because she's understood it, and she shouldn't understood it because it's our world and, and it's a hare. And uh, the hare jumps out the window to try and help help the others. And B is, um, at that moment, for the very first time, uh, possessed, if you like, by a sort of shamanic uh, passion, and she finds her relationship uh, uh, to the spirit world, and she is able to summon up uh, spirits that have died, deer, who chase everything away and clear it all out. And at that moment, um, she's revealed herself both to the, to the hunt, who's hunting down the witch's spirits, because if you can get a witch's spirit, you can get a witch's powers, and at the same time to the other witches, because those three hares contain the spirit of real witches. So that's immediately her, her mm. situation. She's now being hunted by people who want to uh, destroy her, uh, but also hunted by people who want to save her. Matt Williams on The Lost Witch. I, I, we've spoken before about the importance of grabbing people at the, at the start of the book, and my goodness, Melvin, you absolutely grabbed me. with It, I, it, it is within ten pages, you are mm. like, right, I am absolutely mm. along for this ride. And uh, I, But there, the, beyond that, there need to be emotional connections. I actually found, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out there that I'm probably alone mm. in this, I found a very strong emotional connection with her parents. Mm. Because I'm... Uh, the parent to to a teenage boy and the idea of being the parent of a this teenage girl who is seeing things in clouds who says she's got special powers who is also saying you have no clue about what my terms of reference are mm-hmm. i thought oh my goodness yes mm-hmm. this is what it's like to have a teenage <laughs> child yeah. in the house yeah. Yeah. so i was i was absolutely on on board for that and the the question i'd like to ask you is we we had um on a previous episode a couple of weeks ago uh, tracy borman talking about the king's witch which was uh, which was a book talking about putting witches in a very very much a positive light which is mm. similar to yours and I'm mm. I'm interested in where your starting point was because you decided to do this book mm. involving witches mm. and you you obviously very early mm. on decided mm. I want it to be where the witches are are a force for good mm. they are being hunted by the forces of evil mm. but witches are a force for good which obviously historically has mm. not normally been the case um, yeah, the, the, the idea of the witch hunt, the idea of witches actually being real kind of leads you, leads you in, in, into that thing. But I, I mean, what I really wanted the witches to be was shamanic, you know, this sort of connection with the spirit world. It's shamanic, isn't it? And it is dangerous. So when you say the witches are a force for good, I think that, you know, they are a force for good. They certainly don't want to commit any harm and they certainly don't deserve to be uh, hunted down that way. But I think they're um, potentially, you know, dangerous. I don't think they're comfortable. I don't think it's not um, it's not a sort of Narnia situation. They're, they're not controlled, are they? There's the danger yeah. that it's going to spill out at some point. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, um, uh, you know, one of the witches is extremely dangerous. You know, you, you don't, they're not always good. Um, that, that spirit world is, that hidden world is, is, is a world in itself which has good and bad inside it. 
So Michael, that, Michael, you wanted to. Yeah, come I, mean, in I, there. I, I read the book in a couple of days and, and really enjoyed it. Oh. And uh, it, what struck me was almost like the concept of, of spirituality, and I'm trying to relate it to to my own book, mm. where you know I've got a, a an old uh, journeyman professional footballer, mm. twenty two clubs who uh, had an almost spiritual relationship mm. with uh, a man who worked in IT mm. uh, called, called Ron Aldred, the, the guy, uh, the footballer's name was mm. uh, Drew Broughton. And uh, there was a scene literally on Ron's deathbed where he, he, he was suffering from terminal cancer, took mm. his oxygen mask off and, and said mm. to him, you're a leader, go and lead. Mm. And... Uh, Drew is a is, is a complete outlier in professional mm. football because he talks about spirituality and the importance mm. of spir- spirituality, mm. and that that sort of X factor in the mm. human condition that mm. you know a scientist can't rationalise. Mm. And I tried to put that into mm. the context mm. of your writing, and I mm. found it, you know, not so. I'm not actually talking about the spirit world mm. per se, but I'm yeah. talking about the concept of someone's spirit, mm. something mm. intangible mm. in them, mm. which I think you captured brilliantly. Well, uh, yeah, I, I read that. I read that bit, and um, it did immediately make me think of, uh, of this idea of the spirit. And in fact, the way it worked with me was, I thought, you know, because it isn't I mean, the spirit is in living things. If you see a living thing and then you see it dead, you know that something has gone. Mm. But you can also have the spirit of, you know, rivers and so forth. And I was thinking, you know, when would when would the spirit of football? Arise, and I think you know, you, you know, there's that sort of passion, isn't there, in the stadium? And I could see, uh, I could see that rising up and inhabiting a player. But I also thought, in the context of your book, where you're dealing with these darker sides, you know, it's a dangerous spirit as well, isn't it? And I, you know, so I, I, I was thinking that spirit in the stadium, yeah. it's so fantastic and powerful, but it follows you down the tunnel into the dressing room, and then it follows you home as well, and it's not maybe so kind and generous there. Well, the old stadiums, you know, the old sort of football stadiums, like an Anfield or something like that, they're they're almost like resting places for generations of souls mm, yeah, because yeah. you know there are generations mm. of families who've been mm. to watch there and they invest mm. their passion and their hope mm. and their mm. dreams mm. you know within this thing called a football club mm. Mm. i think also um you've got a, uh, a situation where within modern football we, we're just beginning to enter, I would hope, an age of empathy. Mm. You know, you've seen in the World Cup with Gareth mm. Southgate mm. as a as a football manager. It's mm. not a teacup throwing martinet. It's someone who's got human empathy and mm. humility and honesty, mm. and people have related to that. And that's mm. now modern mm. leadership. Mm. Um, so I think it, it is a fascinating mm. area. Mm. And um, uh, as I said, you know, football clubs have real resonance with people. You know, you go to. Um, you know, any football club, there's usually a garden of remembrance around them mm. where, you know, mm. certain fans want to get their ashes mm. spread there. So it's it's interesting that, you know, football has become this modern monolithic industry, mm. but actually at its, at its roots, mm. it's in the heart and soul of the people who go and watch the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is a real such passion, isn't there, for football? And it's a spiritual thing. I think the... And one of the things that marks your book out Melvin, is the theology. You don't major on it particularly, but you make it very clear, as you said, that the witches think that all spirits are part of God, mm. uh, but the Christian priests came along mm. and they saw them as devils, and, mm. and mm. so that's where the oppression comes from. Mm. And I thought mm. that was a real... Kind of, well, I th- that's just like one, mm. one paragraph, yeah, but it's yeah, a real yeah. standout explainer as to 
why we are here doing this thing in your book. It, it, well, and his, it's historically quite accurate. Whenever Christians came along, they always demonised um, the local gods and the, and the local spirits. You know, I mean, uh, our term for hell is taken off uh, the, the Norse goddess of the underworld. So it is, it is factual, that. How much Norse mythology is in this book? Oh, there's quite a bit of Norse. I do love my Norse mythology. You know, <laughs> those, you know, yeah, those 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 wet, soppy Greek gods frolicking around <laughs> in the Mediterranean. You know, this is the proper stuff from the Moors and the sort of uh, yeah. So, you know, if, if you know your Norse mythology, you'll spot them in there. You'll spot the um, the one-handed god of war. You'll spot um, Odin, who sees um, everything who knows everything that will and everything that has happened. But my very favourite god, OK, and I think a lot of people, I think I think Neil Gaiman, you know, sort of, it will share it with this, and a lot of people, is, is the trickster god Loki. And um, I have so long wanted to have a proper trickster, a proper groomer, someone who is attractive and, you know, sweet-talking and sexy and really dangerous really really dangerous oh we know who that is in the book you know who that is straight away and you know b's very vulnerable and um and she is very badly uh, led astray and she she comes back having committed some dreadful acts some really really dreadful acts in innocence and uh, you know i've had a lot of issues from publishers who said the american publishers were very off it really because um you know that poor girl she commits you know she she's led astray in this way and then she comes back and she's guilty, and they allow her, they encourage her to be guilty, you know, because they feel as though you've committed these. You know, you you, you can't forgive yourself, even if you do it in innocence. So that whole area about what sure. consent mm. and uh, and guilt and blame and that sort of, I find that really interesting. Is there um, something you could read from a, uh, from the book, Melvin? Could you do you want to? I mean, maybe it's the opening. I don't know. Is there a section that you could read just so that we can get a flavour? Uh, I could read a little bit. How long do I have? Well, you know. Uh, what do you think, Matt? I'd say a Minute. page. OK, all right then. Um, I'll just open it and do one, shall I? Do it. OK, here you go. I don't want to keep you all waiting for so long. That's all right. right. Here you go. It's so completely... This looks as though it's page six. OK. Um, it's page five, actually. Okay. I haven't bought me specs in either, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting that old. OK, suddenly the whole hillside was lit up. There were no shadows. The light was everywhere. In the car, under the car, above the car... The bikes and quads and the people and dogs were so brightly lit from below as they were from above. It was as if the air itself shone around them. Two of the hares, including old one-eyed, dropped down under the car, but the remaining animal spooked. It jumped sideways, twisted in mid-air, caught its powerful hind legs against the roadside wall and bounded back right at B. It shot in through the car window, as neat as a bolt going home, and landed with a bruising, sodden thump right in her lap. There you go. You're straight away, aren't okay. you? Okay. Yeah, that's Good. beautiful. And that's I from picked, picked by accident on a reasonable paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an important thing to say here, Melvin, and that is this: this is a book that is a, that is a YA book, and yet mm. all four of us in this mm. room mm. thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. We are not the target audience for mm. this book, and I, I'm interested in your mm. reaction as well, Simon, because you've written YA as well. Mm. Is how you are writing a book, knowing that it is being aimed at a, a YA audience. Mm. Is it the school of thought that says, do you know what, good writing's good writing mm. and it doesn't matter? Or do you, th- do you have in your mind that you're thinking, well, no, I am, I'm writing for a specific audience and if I'm going to try and deliver complex ideas to them, mm. as you do in this book, mm. I need to do it in a certain way that's, go- that's going to attract them? Well, uh, I've 
always. I mean, I passed by the statue of George Orwell when I was on my way here. He's a big fan of mine because there's someone writing about politics, a difficult, potentially very boring subject. I think you mean you're a big fan of his. Did I say he was a big fan of mine? Yes, yes. Obviously. (laughs) Wishful thinking on my part, I'm afraid. Anyway, do Yeah, I'm a big fan of his because, you know, he's able to write about really complex things in such a simple way that, you know, you can understand them as a child. And I think that's the role of a writer. You know, if it's hard to understand, that's bad writing, not bad reading. So I do, whether whoever I'm writing for, I always want it to be uh, simple Mm. and easy to understand even if it's a really difficult uh, concept. Um, and, and young people are very open to all sorts of different ideas. But, I mean, but the way I look at it is, is that I'm not writing for them, I'm writing about being that age. OK, I don't know how, how you think about it when you oh, write, right. Simon. I mean, I've only, I, need, I did one YA book, and really it was just... I mean, my understanding of what a YA book is where the lead character is a teenager, and that's about that's Exactly. It. That's as far as it goes. That, and that yeah, is literally... Yeah, it, yeah. They can be as complex yeah, yeah, and yeah. as difficult and as tough or as moving or as yeah. thrilling or as exciting yeah, as any other yeah, book. Yeah. They just have to be teenagers. That's, that's all it requires. And as I say, you know, and you seem to have the same attitude, you're writing about someone that age. Yeah. You're not writing for them. Yeah. And you know, and so therefore, it's 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 a useful term because mm. it explains a bit. Mm. But then, equally, I've been I was writing about Romeo and Juliet recently. Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is fourteen. Yes, Does Romeo and Juliet feel mm. like a, a, a YA play? I don't, it's ridiculous, really. It just mm-hmm. it's just Romeo and Juliet. It's just Romeo and Juliet. You know, mm. Melvin's book is out on August the second, mm-hmm. uh, and it is also available uh, as an audio book, uh, read by uh, Kate Rawson. Uh, and if you would like to uh, download that, uh, then uh, Matt is going to tell you precisely yes. how you do Go that. Go to audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year, where you will not only get a month's free trial, uh, as long as you use that address, you have to say audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year, uh, and you will be able to, if you choose, you go for, go for Melvin's book uh, and you get a month's free trial. Uh, more with Melvin and Michael Calvin talking about State of Play in a second. What do you do when no one else is watching? What do you do that makes you happy for no reason at all? What are you obsessed with? I'm Leslie Arfin, and I'm a writer, but I'm also a dancer, a painter, a vapor, a dollhouse enthusiast, and basically just an overall hobbyist. My podcast, Filling the Void, is all about what other people are fanatically into. We talk about hobbies, even if you don't have one. Listen to Filling the Void on Tuesdays on the Erios Network. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And here we go with uh, part two with Michael Calvin's State of Play. Melvin Burgess is still here with the Lost Witch. He's still here because you can't get out, basically. Because we've, <laughs> they've tied me to my chair. Because, uh, because we put him in a corner. Um, so, Matt, I just want to start with you because yeah. you have... I mean, We've both spoken to Michael before, but you've been a particular fan yes. of Michael's writing. What is it about? Obviously, Michael's just going to have a look the other way because it could be. Yes, then, no. This is the, it's going to get <clears> very what embarrassing. Is, what is it Michael about now. Michael that you particularly admire? In his okay, writing? so I I would argue I'm a, a, a massive fan of sport books, and I would argue that we are right now in a golden age of sports writing in this country. And I'm thinking of Alison Rudd. I'm thinking Marina Hyde. I'm thinking Martin Samuel. I'm thinking Daniel Taylor. And that is scratching the surface. And if we were talking about Godfathers of YA fiction, I would absolutely uh, add that epithet to 
to, to Michael's writing. He has done books in the past which dig under the fingernails of, in particular, football. And football is, is a sport I would flatter myself that I like to think I know a lot about football. And I love, I love books where I get proven wrong time and time and time again. Uh, when I, I've, I've recommended Michael's books uh, to so many people, The Nowhere Men About Football Scouts, uh, which I, I, I was thinking about uh, during the World Cup because it features some player called Delhi Alley. Whatever happened to him? Who knows? Uh, but there's Move on. Yes. <laughs> Living on the Volcano, uh, which is about football managers and the, and the enormous pressures that they're on. And then No Hunger in Paradise, the number of, which is uh, about um, uh, children's football or, or uh, boys and girls that are growing up in, in football academies and the impact that football has on them, the number of times that that book has come up in discussions with parents whose children are trying to pursue a, a career in football. It's it, uh, astonishing. And as soon as I knew that Michael had a football book coming up, it was absolutely, it's as close to a guarantee of quality as you can get in, in sports writing. Okay, well, <clears throat> we don't really need to speak to you now, Michael. I, I <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to leave it at that. Thank you. So thanks very much for coming in. Uh, Michael's book is School State of Play. I saw a tweet that you did the other day and I thought see you can even do a classy tweet and it was about Jose Mourinho oh, you yes. put Mourinho the sound of endless winter <laughs> hang on hang on sign of endless winter wine bitch moan yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was the tweet yeah. very good quality that's yeah. a quality tweet that <laughs> last is. bit of brevity there isn't it yeah. Yeah. Uh, state of play so uh, this comes out on August the 23rd so although <clears throat> the contents the kind of stuff that fills the back pages and the kind of thing that, that fills the hours of Sky Sports that's all reflected here and the World Cup is reflected mm. you know it's very this is very very up to date it feels as though you've stopped writing like last week it was a couple of weeks ago uh, you know <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago um, the the casual fan will find this uh, a whole other world, you know. That they will touch into areas of, f- of football which they've never understood, never looked at before. You, we spend um, a lot of time uh, when you're talking uh, to Jeff Astle's daughter, mm. uh, Dawn, which is a particularly moving and powerful section uh, towards the beginning of the book. Can you just explain? Um, where Jeff Astle sits in this story and how you ended up and why you chose to speak to his daughter. Well, it's the first um, chapter and uh, essentially the first sort of four or five pages of the book are, you know, reflecting the last 60 seconds of his life. He was a man who was, you know, the hero of 1968. Um, He scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final. So there's a vibrant, successful England international footballer. And... He was. Uh, uh, he had um, uh, Alzheimer's when he was uh, 54. He was di- diagnosed with dementia. When he died at the age of 59, um, the neuropathologist who uh, did the post mortem said that he had a brain of a, of, a, of a man aged between 85 and 90, and that was an industrial disease, i.e., heading a heavy football. And what I wanted to try and do was was just almost register the personal tragedy and then put it into a much broader context because it is a, it's a huge issue, you know, CTE, brain damage, uh, and, you know, the people who are you know, dying in, in droves in, in North American sport. That is confronting English football now. You know, I, I talk to, you know, guys of, of, of my generation, you know, guys who are sort of 50, 
who played the game and they are terrified that this could happen to them. And so it was very graphic and, and very moving. Um, we talked about, say, the last sort of 60 seconds of his life. In essence, he choked to death on his own vomit in the front garden um, during a family day. Um, and Dawn expressed then what happened afterwards in terms of going, going to the, the chapel of rest, making a promise to him. If football's killed you, I'm going to get justice for you. And there's almost like a sort of a mini Hillsborough situation. It took her 14 years to, to finally make an impact. And, you know, the, the clubs responded and it became almost like a people's movement. And so although he's not a, uh, a modern figure as such, he represents, you know, a modern challenge to the game. It's, it's conscience and... There is, so I looked at what's been going on, broadened that into, uh, you know, what's going on in the States, the research, where we are with it, and the whole idea of football being terrified of, of blame and guilt here because to get long-term growth with any sport, with any industry, you have to capture the youth. Now, you know, in, in the States, you can't hit a ball... Um, uh, when you're uh, younger than 14. Uh, over here, it's looking at 10 years old. Mm. You know, there is a suspicion that there's a denial of responsibility simply because the, the game itself could become stigmatised as something which actually, this could kill you. And, you know, that's a, a terrible thing to think about. It is. The, the, the sequence with Dawn, Dawn Astle, is um, heartbreaking. And it's a, a part of it is because, as, as Simon mentioned, this wasn't someone I expected to be in this book. And yet when she comes in, you, 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 you connect with her absolutely straight away. I want to ask you about another aspect that you cover very early because we're talking about the state of the state of this sport. So we need to talk about the players and we need to talk about the way that we treat those players. And... Something that one aspect of that really stood out, and that is how there are players with self doubt. And here's a simple fact we all have periods of self doubt where we think we're, we're not actually good enough that someone's going to tap us on the shoulder and say no. Mm-hmm. But what we don't have is 30,000 people surrounding us, telling us and confirming to us that actually, yes, those self doubts are absolutely right. You are not good enough. And yet when those players talk about that, talk about the fact that they have these uh, these periods of, of, of self-doubt, they are lampooned and they are uh, ridiculed because you're a, you're a millionaire footballer. Why on earth do you think you get the opportunity to be able to talk about this? Mm. And, 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 and that is something that you, that you address in this. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it's changing. You know, just uh, during the World Cup, Danny Rose, the, mm. the Tottenham player, uh, spoke very vividly and um, uh, movingly about his own problems with mental health and other modern issues like, you know, coming from, you know, the gun crime issues on, on urban estates. And I suppose that's why I wanted the book to be as broad as possible so I can look at people that... Maybe you know, the, the, the general readership don't know. So someone like uh, Tajayan Hutton, uh, a young man whose father was a community leader, uh, died prematurely at the age of 52, he works around Wembley and he works with the, the gangs and basically he uses football as, as a tool for social inclusion, which sounds a nice fluffy phrase, but actually 
you know, he has to t- cope with you know people turning up with weapons, and it, it can get nasty. But he said, look, if I don't do this, no one does this. And there's there's a there's a degree of normality and acceptance for for guys that, you know, that they do literally leave the, leave their weapons on the touchline, um, and so that guy is doing you know immen- immense social good in difficult social circumstances, and I think that's where uh, you know Danny Rose has has, has opened it up. Um, you're right about insecurity that basically infects the game, and because it's a game which you know has this sort of machismo surrounding it it's seen by too many people as weakness if you actually admit to that type of insecurity because they're all hiding it some hide it better than others and that's not just within the players you know when I, when I did living on the volcano with the managers it was exactly the same where you know that book began with Martin Ling, you know, the manager, literally having the electrodes implanted on his head for for ECT, um, which I thought took amazing moral courage to actually come out and talk about that publicly. So what I'm trying to do is is raise issues like concussion, like mental health, like racism, like homophobia, uh, like you know Brexit Britain. Uh, um, I've got Sean Dyche within the book is talking about angry Britain. And how them as f- uh, football managers, they're almost the uh, uh, the weather vanes, really, the lightning rods that that they are just bombarded with vitriol, which reflects a pretty broken society. Is there a section that you'd uh, you'd like to read, Michael? What I'd like to do, I've, I start every chapter with a quote. <clears throat> yeah, this is um, chapter two, which was uh, it's perfectly imperfect, and this is. Uh, Drew Broughton, the the chap I spoke about earlier, uh, speaking. I've lost count of the number of times I've sat with young guys in tears. My conversations expose them to a ruthlessness that's paramount, a ruthlessness they don't understand. The lies, the insincerity, the constant lack of trust. The mental health issues that arise as players move through the system and away from their God-given talent. It's the industry, so let's prepare them for brutal reality. And why did you pick that one specifically? Was it just because of that, that area we touched on before? Yes, because that's the context of the game, uh, that um, dreams are woven around professional football, but when you actually strip away that stardust, it's a, a pretty brutal game which eats people up. Melvin, is this, this is, what's fascinating about this is this is not the kind of football that everyone understands because the, what they get is, as Michael was saying, they we, we get the the Twitter profile and we get the yeah, yeah. we get we get the bling, but we mm. don't get this the underside, the dirty side. No, it's it's another world. I mean, I'm not a big football fan. I like the big games, you know. I was there with the World Cup with me mate, sort of uh, cheering it on, but um, throwing your beer up in the air, throwing <laughs> me beer up in the air or not <laughs> towards the end. But anyway. You know, but I mean, um, it, it, nevertheless, it was such an eye opener, such an eye opener. I mean, as you say, that first uh, chapter is just heartbreaking. You know, and as a daughter fighting so hard for, you know, to, to to get that that for her for her father, and the and the guy who's is into the spirituality in the second mm. thing, and uh, yeah, I was I was astonished and, uh, and 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 really really fascinated to find out about you know the the concussion problems, the problems about the keeping up appearances. You know, which 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 was so so really very interesting and uh, heartbreaking. The other thing I'd say about it is really beautifully written. 
Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful prose style. It did, you know, nothing as you would else, expect. You know, just gorgeous. Michael Calvin's book is State of Play. Melvin Burgess's book uh, is The Lost Witch. Melvin's is out on August the 2nd. Mike's is out on August the 23rd. We're going to uh, end each podcast with some of our uh, questions, which we're going to uh, just throw at you. And there's a big list. And we're encouraging people to send in uh, their own questions. We can add them to the roster of questions that we can just uh, throw at our authors uh, in every podcast. What was the last book you really, really enjoyed? The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Go on. It was great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually writing um, a book, which is, which you, I suppose you'd call it a triptych in an imagined world in which um, uh, three of us have imagined. So they're three separate novels. And there's a lot of sort of race issues in there. And the guys that I'm working with said, you need to go and read your black history. OK. And uh, so I've been reading Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, various other folk. And uh, Ma- uh, Malcolm X's autobiography is fascinating. You know, he started off, you know, top of the class in a in a country town. It became apparent that um, he was never going to get to be a lawyer because he was the wrong colour. He went to New York and ended up in a zoot suit taking loads of cocaine and, you know, lots of little criminal dodgy things. Ended up going to prison and, and came out as a as a black Muslim. And, uh, you know, the, go and look him up on YouTube. What book do you remember being read to you as a child? I was read, the very first book I was read to was The Wind in the Willows. I was very lucky. My parents read to me every night. And uh, their kids came in two batches, you know. There was me and my older brother and then a gap and then the other ones. And my parents were concerned that having been the baby for five years, um, I might feel left out. And so they read to me every night. And The Wind in the Willows was the one that I, uh, I really fell in love with. They read it to me. And then by then I, I could read it for myself. And then I took it into school and it was read to my classmates, of course. You know, I was so proud because it was my <laughs> book. And ever since yeah. then, I feel as though I've owned that book and it's kind of owned me. Uh, is there a book on your shelf that you love and no one else does? Um... I've got a book on my shelf, not necessarily that no one else does like, but you don't come across very often, which is by a female Japanese writer called uh, uh, Kurini Natsuo, and it's called Out. And um, it's it's a book which in Japan has uh, not only won sort of detective stories, but literary prizes as well, which is pretty unusual, really. It's beautifully written. It's from the point of view of... Uh, the criminal or the criminals, who are a group of women working in a, a, a bento box factory, who uh, one of them accidentally kills her husband, so they have to sort of chop him up and <laughs> just deliver him around. Not in the bento boxes, guys, <laughs> and, um, and and then they end up working for gangsters, and the detectives are circling around. But your hearts are with these women, and it's a beautiful book. Uh, I, I recommend it thoroughly. Uh, okay, so there, Melvin's questions. Mike, your questions, the one, uh, the ones that you've pointed us to. The last book you really, really enjoyed, and you. Highlight for us. It's the one I actually finished on the train down to London this morning. Um, it's called uh, The Lost Soul of Eamon McGee uh, by an Irish writer called uh, Paul Gibson. A uh, story of the <clears throat> a world champion boxer, 2003, um, a child of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, um, came from the Ardoyne. Uh, his father was involved with the IRA. He became, you know, he, he was a complete rebel. Um, was around you know, under under snipers' towers, smuggling, hijacking uh, buses and cars by the time he was about 11. Um, and it's a story of <clears throat> almost unimaginable personal distress 
and intermittent achievement. Here's someone who's had his throat slashed. Um, he had an IRA bullet in his calf. He's had punishment beatings, um, dealing with alcoholism, depression, full-on drug habit. Um, yet somehow he survived all that. He had the, the dream of his, his son, Eamon Jr., following in his footsteps and then seeing his son murdered uh, on the streets of Belfast, uh, knife to death. So it's this portrait of, of, of a, a, a man in going through all sorts of agonies um, and uh, he has, you know, the, the paranoia sets in, the drug episodes, and he is a lost soul. Um, but I, I found it fantastic, an absolutely fantastic book. And, and the title again? The Lost Soul of Eamon McGee. Okay. Uh, the one that got away, is there a book that you think should have been massive but wasn't? Yeah, I, there's a book called The Prophet of the Sandlots uh, by uh, an American writer called Mark Weingardner. Uh, it was out late 90s. I think it's out of print now. But it's a story of uh, Tony Lucadello, who was a scout in baseball for the Chicago Cubs uh, and the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. Um, in his lifetime, two million miles on the road. Um, you know, basically a dislocated life. You know, low low rent motels, uh, looking for the one, the player. Uh, he actually found forty nine major league baseball players throughout his life. The life ended um, very close to a deserted ballpark. It was the home of the defunct Fostoria Redbirds, and within that tragedy, there was something quite beautiful about that, and, and it really affected me, and I thought it was a fantastic book. And to be honest, uh, it was the book that I had in my mind when I wrote um, The Nowhere Men about football scouts. OK. And in fact, you've answered the last question, which is, have you ever cried reading a book? <laughs> Copiously. Uh, <laughs> read it, actually reading and writing it. Do you cry, Melvin, when you read books? Yeah, I'm hopeless. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, all the time. Um, I'm, I'm, I am a sucker in that respect. As I get older, it gets worse, actually. Do what, you ever uh, cry at your own books? Yeah, I do. I mean, writing The Lost Witch, uh, I was in bits in several places. Um, Does that know, surprise you? Um, no. Um, you know, there's a quote I've always got in my mind um, from, from Dickens, which is, is that you get a character and you make the reader love them and then you think of the worst possible thing that can happen to them and then you do it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's, that's one of my little guidelines. Yeah. Mine's fiction, you know, so, yeah. you know, you can do that. It was, and it, it, sorry, it was interesting what you said about, you know, having wind in the willows read to you. Yeah. I, I tear up when I've got my, my four-year-old uh, granddaughter. Yeah. You know, at bed and bedtime, and I'm reading her a story, and you can see her sort of snuggling in, feel her snuggling yeah, in. Yeah. But you can see in those eyes the imagination is just yeah, working, yeah, yeah, and I yeah. find that a really emotional thing. So Matt never cries yeah, ever at any. Never book. cry at anything, no, as I have no emotions. Roughly, toughly. Um, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Melvin and Michael, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Melvin. Burgess is back with The Lost Witch. Don't go away for another five years, Melvin. Thank you. Um, Michael Calvin's is uh, State of Play. Melvin's out August the 2nd. Mike's out August 23rd. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. you so much. So thanks to our guests. By the way, we, we always mention uh, the uh, the email address. 
I mentioned it because I can remember it now. It's so simple. That's why. That's right. Yeah, that's why but we picked it. You can also uh, tweet us at Books of the Year. Yes, of course. Yeah. So if you want to be yeah. really in the heartland of everything, mm-hmm. uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Books of the Year, and then you can email Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Yes. And then you can read and download and just love us. Every avenue is open to you, really. And send I mean... us cash. And... Oh, yeah, well, uh, right. Yeah. Yes, no, please do send money. You know, if you see us in the street, just come over and say, would, would you like a pound? <laughs> <laughs> or a share of my Twix. Yes, or some gin, or which like apparently... That. With fever tree, yes. which, is, so which is very nice. <laughs> Next up from us... Yes? Do it, do it. Can you do a little kind of drum thing? That was brilliant. That sounds like your rustling paper. Well, it was. Uh, Kate Atkinson uh, has a, a, a new book out, and it's always an event uh, when you get a Kate Atkinson book because there are so, there are so many people who would have her as their favourite writer mm. and they kind of been waiting and hanging around and saying, Kate, for heaven's sake, why do we have to wait so long? <laughs> uh, anyway, she has a new book out and Kate will be here on the next Books of the Year podcast. Look out for that. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.